You get the sense with some war movies that the war itself isn't a good enough motivation for some soldiers. They're there for the adrenaline or the camaraderie or to avoid something back at home. But a different, no less strong motivation comes to the fore in They Were Expendable, being underestimated. It's easy to forget that there was a time when PT boats weren't inextricably linked to the image of John Fitzgerald Kennedy ripping through the coastal waters while wearing his Ray-Bans and single-handedly sinking a line of Japanese cruisers. There was a time when the PT boat was maligned. I mean, look at those things. Are you kidding me? And this film is chock full of sailors who are absolutely champing at the bit to go to war, except they're saddled with what their leadership sees as glorified pontoon party boats. John Wayne's character, Rusty Ryan, can't deal with this derision, so he prepares his papers to transfer elsewhere. Trouble is, when your request is dated December 7th, 1941, a person can assume it's not going to be a priority for those in charge. Everyone in this Philippines-based PT boat squadron assumes that now, this will be their time to prove their worth. But, after being relegated to messenger duty, morale crashes and their hopes of their craft being used in combat fade. Just as they're about to be deployed to destroy some Japanese vessels, Rusty is ordered to the hospital. It's blood poisoning. Missing what he sees as his best shot at action, he is understandably devastated. Rusty is the crankiest patient in the hospital before Nurse Sandy gets through to him, as Donna Reed has the power to do. And the rest of the film is spent absorbing the constant losses of boats and men under Robert Montgomery's command. American forces are pushed back constantly, outgunned and outnumbered, retreating island to island. For a film of its era, it contains much more defeat than you'd expect. By the end, no one is underestimating the PT boat or the sailors who command them, but maybe Rusty's biggest mistake was underestimating how much danger Nurse Sandy was in. Today on Friendly Fire, we'll skip her a cake of soap in the bathtub of our show as we discuss the 1944 John Ford classic, They Were Expendable. Welcome to Friendly Fire, the war movie podcast where one of the hosts used to skip her a bowl of spaghetti in a bathtub too. I'm Ben Harrison. Well, that one's not me. I'm Adam Pranica. It's me! Hey! It's a job, Hey! I'm a skipper of a bowl of spaghetti. <laughs> I'm John Roderick. None of us have ever skippered a bar of soap in a bathtub, though. No. <laughs> skippered a bar of soap in a prison shower. Oh. Uh, <laughs> tell that story. Wow. I was... I had just turned 18. Mm. I was in Boulder County, Colorado. Yeah. I only showered at night. Yeah. This is like becoming just what the show is about, the time that John was in jail in Boulder. <laughs> if I can reference it in 25% of uh, of Friendly Fire episodes, I'll I'll do it. I think that's an achievable goal. <laughs> I went to jail in Boulder and I showered at night. That's my Johnny Cash. Mm-hmm. You got to go deep got for a that Johnny Cash. Beautiful singing voice, Adam. <laughs> yeah, you really do. <laughs> that is uncanny. A, that is beneath the depth of what my voice can do. 
<laughs> I may have misread what was stated on Wikipedia, but it made it sound in the Wikipedia like Robert Montgomery was actually the XO of the real life character that his character, Lieutenant John Brickley, was based on. Did you guys look at the Wikipedia about this movie? Say what now? Well, I so, will now. <laughs> part, part of part of his like part of like the interesting story about this is that John Ford broke his leg like ex- examining some set and was off the off the shoot for a, a little while and Robert Montgomery uh, came in and directed a bunch of scenes so that they wouldn't lose days and it's it, it, he he went on to have a directing career but this is his first swing at directing anything but he was good at it because he had some experience as a pt boat uh skipper not as the xo of the of the main guy or well, not- listen to this uh in the production notes on wikipedia it says it, his character was based on a, a medal of honor winner named john d bulkley john ford met bulkley during the normandy invasion and later cited his former executive officer, Lieutenant Robert Montgomery, on D-Day. Right. Is it is that a different Robert Montgomery? I think Bulkley is a great name. Why did they change it to Brickley? Because I guess you want to call the guy Brick, right, and not Bulk. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's so it's lightly fictionalized. This is based yeah. on based on real stuff, but I don't think they wanted it to be. Um, it's not one of those war movies where we're meant to follow along exactly what happened. Although a lot of this stuff did happen. The thing about that story you're telling, Ben, that I really seized onto was that, you know, you're used to the idea of a John Wayne being the biggest swinging dick on any film set and being the star of stars. But John Ford killed John Wayne in the production of this film, like was the biggest dick to him. And the idea that he was second billing in this film, that John Ford hated him, that he was the non-vet of the actors, and he was made to feel uh, like othered by everyone is amazing. Yeah. I just can't conceive of it. And and how bad must John Wayne have felt when John Ford injured himself and like, oh shit, my co-star is, is field promoted to director, like <laughs> Veterans Club. Like, how am yeah. I going to get fucked today? John Wayne might have been thinking. It's especially weird given that John Ford made John Wayne. Yeah. Right? I mean, John Wayne acts in a lot of John Ford movies. And would go on after this film to, to like, they did The Quiet Man together. Like, like really great John Wayne films came afterward. And it's amazing that, that John Ford didn't poison the well with him. But from the very beginning, from the opening credits of this movie... Everyone in the film is credited yeah. with their World War II Navy rank. Yeah. Right? I mean, one after another, everyone working on this production actually was in the Navy and they were all like, Lieutenant Commander Robert Montgomery. Yeah. And, you know, like trying to give not just verisimilitude, but also. They, they designed the credits at John Wayne. <laughs> yeah, right. And I think John Wayne, his whole life, because because this is a, this is a matter of. Uh, that has been discussed and discussed for decades. John Wayne's failure to serve during World War II and then went on to become like ultra patriot dude. His daughter at one point famously said that 
he became like a hyper patriot to compensate for the fact that he was always <laughs> deeply ashamed that he didn't go. Methinks John Wayne and make more movie too much. Yeah, right. <laughs> He's got like career <laughs> truck nuts. <laughs> <laughs> if you look at what he did during the war, he really, he really like at every turn was kind of like, oh, I've got flat feet. Oh, I want to join, but my back is hurting. Like he joined the OSS, but he didn't change his address. So the acceptance letter went to his ex-wife's house mm. and the letter went into the trash compactor. There's like <laughs> so many examples of what you look at from a distance and go, oh, he's just a chicken shit. He didn't want to go and he came up with a lot of re- Like he was exempted because he was 34, but Robert Montgomery was 44 or something like that. It's weird. Like I get it, but... Why wasn't he given a pass? He did more for military recruiting in that era than anyone else could have possibly done, right? He, he was, except that you never can be. Like the, the yeah. It's one of those things of the time. Either like, you were there or you weren't, yeah, man. Yeah, if you didn't go, then you didn't go. Yeah. And even if you went and were, were peeling potatoes, if you were in the hold of a ship that was in the combat zone, right. you were there. And a lot of, you know, a lot of these movie stars, they joined... And they went and did USO shows. Yeah, it's not like Robert Montgomery was like doing the blood and guts routine. He over was there. though. Robert Montgomery was actually like in the shit. Uh, we have not spent a ton of time in the Philippines on this show. I mean, the story of the 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 fall of the Philippines is is kind of like John Wayne's military career. A little bit of a um, of a black mark or a big black mark on the U.S. Army that got. Um, there's a lot of revisionism around because MacArthur made some pretty classic blunders and his whole like I shall return business his his escape in in the middle of the night which is documented here in this movie um, yeah. his like sneaking out leaving behind a huge American army that ended up surrendering to the Japanese in Bataan and it was the largest American surrender in history um, and then all those soldiers were forced on the D- Bataan death march and all of it arguably for nothing. I, I actually have a moment of pedantry about the, uh, the, the MacArthur quote. Uh, a frame at the end of the movie said, we shall return, and it's attributed to General Douglas MacArthur. In fact, the White House tried to get the general to change his famous quote to we, but he refused, saying he failed to see the purpose. It should read, <laughs> I shall return. I mean, somehow MacArthur like we see in in grandiose political figures, ended up being sort of bulletproof throughout his career. He turned this failure into the like one of the defining moments of his career as like a as like a rad thing he said. Right, a super legendary moment and a legendary uh, in a legendary career, but he's really like very decidedly retreating and not just retreating but but like sneaking Leaving out. 38,000 troops to the Badan Death March. This is a whole movie about that. It's yeah. about getting our asses kicked and retreating. Yeah. And the feeling at the end is one of victory. It's amazing. Yeah. Because, <laughs> you know, the movie's made at the end of the war. Yeah, so you it's know like, the ending. And somehow, even in this moment, we see, I mean, when MacArthur gets on that PT boat, every character in the in the film looks at him with loving awe. Yeah, it's playing like glory hallelujah and stuff. <laughs> Which is, you know, how he was how he was regarded through his whole career. But I think as a, I mean, historians look at him with a pretty 
critical eye through all of this. There were other, let's just say there were other alternatives he had. There was a whole plan for the defense of Bataan. He'd yet to become the guy with the ladders. That would be later. The guy with the ladders, yeah. (laughs) But there was a plan before the war for the defense of Bataan, and MacArthur came in and rejected it and put his own plan in place. And as his own plan crumbled during the battle... He, at one point, just reverted to the original plan. Like, oh, we're going back to plan 3B. He, he yells into a radio as everybody's scattering. But, but he had he'd spread his resources around because he had re, he'd revised the plan. And so when he was like, back to, you know, back to the original plan, they weren't set up for the original plan. And it ended up being a big one of like a dozen clusterfucks around this event. Yeah. I wondered, like, would an audience at the time have, like, understood the significance of Corregidor and Manila Bay and all that stuff? Yeah, this was all front-page news. You know, each one of these things would have been a a battle that Americans had to, just as as we do when when we get into some overseas campaign and you're like, where is Tora Bora? You know, like, people (laughs) that are reading the newspaper figure out where Tora Bora is. There's right. a relationship What's between a newspaper again? Yeah, I know. the geography and the technology that this film really glosses over because like this film is about PT boats and their crews and whether or not they they serve any use where they're at. But like the PT boat is the guerrilla warfare naval platform and logically I'm like I don't know a lot about the Philippines but I'm, I'm seeing these boats and their ability to operate in shallow waters, and they're not really making a super strong case for their utility outside of their kind of last boat standing mentality. I think the, the story of the PT boat is interesting because there were characters in World War II that understood that the bombers or aircraft carriers were the new technology that was going to transform war making. You know, we we saw in the character or in the the personage of Bulkley or Brickley, uh, somebody who saw the potential of PT boats where the old Navy guys were still clinging to destroyers. And so I think at the end of the war, there was a recognition that the PT boat had become a decisive form of guerrilla warfare. And this movie is sort of playing a little bit for laughs not for laughs, but the the viewing audience would recognize in a way that, that some of the brass at the beginning of the movie didn't see that PT boats became, if not decisive, then at least like a, an honorable way to serve in the Navy. But John Wayne is against PT boats at the beginning, and so is the Admiral. It's really Bulkley is the only, or Brickley is the only guy that's like, look, PT boats are going to be the thing. You know, because PT-109 was a famous story by the end. Right. Yeah. They really drag that that submariner when they like shame him into giving them a bunch of torpedoes. I know. How many boats <laughs> have you guys sunk? <laughs> the thing the thing that's key to the understanding this movie and a thing that that isn't really addressed in this movie is that American torpedoes and we've talked about this in watching submarine movies before, the 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 Mark 14 torpedo, the American torpedo that we went to war with was a shit torpedo. And there were submarines it, that had, that could have played major 
a, a major role in stopping the Japanese advance and the subs were there and they fired torpedo after torpedo and the torpedoes didn't explode because there was because they were um, they had a major flaw. It's got to be so maddening. And that was true of PT boats too. Ugh. They were there and they would fire these Mark 14 torpedoes and the torpedo would go and hit the Japanese destroyer and go like bonk and just slowly <laughs> sink. And I mean, but it probably made like a really loud noise when it hit. Bonk, 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 bonk. Yeah, I'm sure it was very irritating for those on the Japanese destroyers. <laughs> so like American subs... Because the Japanese, when they came in during this phase of the war, really early on in the war, the first thing they did was what they did at Pearl Harbor. They destroyed all the airplanes, uh, like all, all the American Air Force bases that were there, Army Air Force bases. The Japanese came in, surprised, attacked them and burned all the planes on the ground. So all we had was subs and little PT sized boats to wage war there. Were the PT boats the reason that the Japanese Navy stopped transporting 200 tons of TNT in every cruiser? <laughs> <laughs> because their cruisers spectacularly blow big in this movie. There's some big fire. Some of the most extravagant explosions we have seen, period. I would say throughout the film, uh, there are a lot of really breathtaking compositions and the interplay between aircraft and, and boats in the water. Really great stuff. Really l nice low altitude uh, dogfighting happening. This film got a well deserved Oscar for best effects. The yeah. I mean, like it's it's a real high watermark in terms of like naval combat stuff that we've seen. Well, when the first scene of the Japanese Zeros raiding the base, when those when those planes went from V formation into attack mode. I was watching it, you know, kind of slouched on the couch, and I jumped up out of my chair and was just like, wow, whoa. <laughs> I mean, it was so, it was such a breathtaking shot that yeah. I was like, I am, how have I not, how did I not know this already that this was the greatest film ever made? And I really, at, the, <laughs> at, the, at that point in, the, in watching the film, I was like, if this movie would have to work hard to not get a five-star rating from me just based on that. On that combo. I could never imagine like using this word for any film from 1945, but it was cool. Yeah. All of those action scenes were cool. So cool. Really well done. Realistic and, yeah. and, you, and, and tense. And compound too. Like a lot of foreground background stuff like PT boats jumping other PT boats as wake and, and depth charge looking explosions coming out of the water and fighters in the sky circling like it's all happening and like chaff in the air all around yeah. them like the I, like I, I'm sure that's miniatures when they cut to that those shots where the boats are just surrounded by exploding chaff but but a fair amount of them are and and like we have seen a lot of navy miniatures in, in particular that looked terrible and these do not they look great it really heightens the tension of the thing and you need to do that in a film this long. Yeah. Well, and that's the thing. I mean, I, at that point, I was like, "This is this is a five star movie unless they unless they really bungle it." Yeah. They didn't really bungle it, but they did that 1945 thing where there was a what seems like a completely superfluous entire romantic movie in the middle of it, where John Wayne again does the thing where he takes a hostile nurse protagonist he doesn't even plant one on her yeah he just 
glares at her. It was a magical hammock they sat in. Yeah. It changed and, everything. And she's just like, I love you. I mean, they fall in love literally from across a crowded dance floor. That's a little bit more classy than the way Peter Sellers makes women fall in love with Yeah, him. right. I mean, it's not James Bond. It's it's some, it's some a guy where he's like, I've got an infection in my hand. And she's like, I love it. I love you. <laughs> Donna Infected Reed hand. is beautiful in this movie. She's beautiful wearing a hat. She's beautiful wearing a jumpsuit. Like, it doesn't matter. Yeah. She's great. Jumpsuit and a string of pearls? It's a hell of a combination. Total snack. Yeah, I didn't know that was my thing until this movie, but it's definitely <laughs> jumpsuit and string of pearls. Jumpsuit and string of pearls. She takes that one second to turn and primp in the mirror in front of everyone. Like, hang on, before I'm introduced, will you give me just a second? She takes her hat off. She just gives... Run a comb through my hair. Yeah, and then turns around, puts the string of pearls on, then turns around and is like... Nice to meet you. John Ford is like, how are we going to make the viewing audience believe that uh, Donna Reed's beautiful and everyone should fall in love with her? Like, can we have everyone fall in love with her? Everyone in the movie. Yes, we can. Yeah. It's insane. Yeah. That's, that scene ends with them all just being like, hey, uh, thank you so much for just being around me for a little yeah. while. That was really wonderful. Just to. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to crank it about this for the rest of my life. No joke. That was a crucial, like, a lot of that is is laughable up until the point where dinner's over and Donna Reed gets up from the table and after meeting all of these guys is struck with the realization that they're all going to die. Like, I don't want to meet the people who I'm going to have to perform surgery on later. And I thought that was heavy duty yeah. in a film like this, which really didn't telegraph uh, that kind of pathos early on. It seemed like a very man versus man kind of conflict up until that point but when she expressed that feeling i was i was really wounded by it it was great and that she did it yeah. with her back turned too like she didn't get the movie star turn into the light with tears rolling down her cheeks like she almost played that totally uh away from the camera yeah it made me think that same thing right of, of all the people you get a feeling in a movie like this where you've got a bunch of Navy guys all standing in an office and somebody comes in and says, we're at war. Right. And all the actors make kind of like concern face, but you know, these are the war makers who have trained their lives to make war. And now they're at war. Like they're, if they are making concern face, it is only because they're duty bound to not jump in the air and go, yes, yes, we're at war. I'm a fucking <laughs> sailor and we're going to, Fight! Yes! The only guy who deserved concern face and didn't get it was Doc. And we needed five more minutes of him going, so do I uh, go report? I mean, am I retired? <laughs> right, right. <laughs> like, uh, do I keep drinking? Yeah, they had, they had like, they were at Doc's Doc's retirement, retirement party. Doc's retirement party is so confusing. Yeah. And then Doc shows up later, like, at work. Yeah. I guess he rescinded his... Well, no, you don't get to retire if you if yeah. war starts. Yeah, it's that's like, it. Sorry, stop Doc. Loss, yeah. <laughs> so it was understood that, yeah. that that was his deal. Yeah, here's your hat. Get, get back to work. Doc was grizzled. There's also all that stuff about how John Wayne's character wants to wants to transfer to a destroyer and then and he's like working on the on the letter that he's gonna use to get that transfer when when the war breaks out and like crumples it up and throws it off camera yeah he doesn't crumple it up because he's like i'm i'm into pt boats now he's like well that so much for that plan yeah yeah i'm not abandoning these guys in in a situation like this right but yeah back to that donna reed scene the idea that that of everybody in the field of combat, 
that scene where the where the doctor is working on somebody's abdomen and they wheel him off and they wheel another that dude in assembly line surgery was so amazing and it's just, it's basically we're we're meant to understand there's one doctor two nurses and 250 casualties coming in and even the hospital itself is like a factory right with its tunnel configuration you right. can just sort of see you could see it in your mind how this works i mean i went to a, uh, i went to a military base uh uh forward operating base in Africa when I was on that tour mm-hmm. and there was a full combat ready hospital there and there were surgeons and anesthesiologists and nurses and they had they had room for 10 people to be operated on at once and they were actually sitting in a chair throwing playing cards at a hat I'd never actually <laughs> I'd never seen anyone wow. do that in real life throw playing cards at a hat but here they were and so we're standing there kind of meeting them and I was like, have you ever used this as a hospital? And they were like, nope, but it's here in case we need it. Wow. And the day that something goes down, the day that a bomb goes off in a U.S. embassy in Naimi, uh, this is where American people are going to get brought from anywhere in Africa, basically. They're going to get airlifted here. They're going to be putting bullets in that hat. And so, so here we are throwing cards in this hat, but every day we wake up and, and we polish our spoons or whatever. I don't know. I Donna Reed's like emotion. It did feel real. It just made me think. Did it feel like they were definitely going to pay off that relationship at some point? I was shocked that they never kiss. That it just that it yeah it reached to the point of pre kiss and then you can still get pregnant from pre kiss though. Back right. then you could. Yeah. <laughs> By the time the film ended, I was like, you you forgot about Donna Reed. She never reappears. No. Well. That's another like amazing moment of pathos, though, when they're getting on the plane and they yeah. realize that like any number of things could have happened to her up to and including she is a prisoner of the Imperial Japanese Army. Right. Nothing good happened. It was a sophisticated uh, amount of restraint not to tie it up nicely and instead leave it that way. Yeah. Like a last gut punch. Yeah. Boy, and that whole lottery for the for the seat on the plane, and then to be the guy who thinks he's going to get on the plane because two no shows happened, and then to be pulled yeah. off the plane, there like that last ten minutes of the film was full of like four sucker punches. Well, and crazy like that was a ma- an army major and a and a captain, yeah. and they got pulled off for these two twenty one year old ensigns. Oof. That's and, the worst, right? And, but, you know, they're in front of everybody, so they have to be like, okay, well, good luck out there. You know, I'm going back to my certain death. And they did everything they could to dopify that one ensign, too. Like like drinking dishwater ensign. Like, yeah. <laughs> that yeah. guy was an idiot. Dishwater ensign. That's a, that's that's a good call, call sign. sign. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's fair. Welcome back to Fireside Chat on KMAX. With me in studio to take your calls is the dopest duo on the West Coast, Oliver Wong and Morgan Rhodes. Go ahead, caller. Hey, uh, I'm looking for a music podcast that's insightful and thoughtful, but like also helps me discover artists and albums that I've never heard of. Yeah, man. Sounds like you need to listen to Heat Rocks every week. Myself and I'm Morgan Rhodes and my co-host here, Oliver Wong, talk to influential guests about a canonical album that has changed their lives. Guests like Moby, Open Mike Eagle, talk about albums by Prince, Joni Mitchell, and so much more. Yo, what's that show called again? Heat Rocks, deep dives into hot records. Every Thursday on Maximum Fun. 
Hi, I'm Renee Colbert. I'm Alexis Preston. And we're the hosts of the smash hit podcast, Can I Pet Your Dog? Now, Alexis. Yes. We got big news. Uh Uh-oh. Since last we did a promo, our dogs have become famous. World famous. World, like, stars on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. Second big news. Mm -hmm. The reviews are in. Mm Mm-hmm. Take yourself to Apple Podcasts. You know what you're going to hear? We're happy. It's true. We're a delight. A great distraction from the world. I like that part a lot. So if that's what you guys are looking for, mm-hmm. you got to check out our show. But what else can they expect? We've got dog tech, dog news, celebrities with their dogs, all dog things. All the dog things. So if that interests you, well, get yourself on over to Maximum Fun every Tuesday. Yeah. Talking about pathos, uh, I also really respected... Uh, Robert Montgomery's uh, choices in the scene where he's told by the Admiral that he's essentially going to be the head of Message Boy Squadron at the beginning of the conflict. Like, he's in that office with a tear just, like, parked on the edge of his eyelid for the entire scene. In crazy half-shadow. I mean, that that was drama. How do you do that? Well, and what's crazy is I waited in that scene for any one of a thousand movie tropes for him to say, you know, sir, you've got to let us fight or in some way to push back. Well, they make the case that like they could have gone and like taken out some boats then that would have maybe slowed or changed how the Japanese had to prosecute their assault. And I, I think that may be plays into what you were saying about MacArthur not having necessarily a great plan. Right. But he he plays that so, I mean, it's so dramatic. And then he doesn't, he's just like, yes, sir, thank you for explaining that. And you just go, oh, it was, it was harder to watch than square-shouldered conflicts between, uh, between an underling and his exec. Yeah. There's, there's never insubordination. Like, like people get tempted uh, by insubordination. A million times, but never actually follow through. Right. John Wayne kicks a paint can at one point. But everyone understands, yeah. like, the rules of what qualifies as uh, insubordination. Like, there's that scene where they, they sarcastically call each other sir. They overuse the word sir right. quite a bit. Right. <laughs> so they're, they're, like, referring to the chain of command with incredulity at times. But at no point does anyone step out of their lane into actual insubordination. At the very end, when, uh, when Brickley and John Wayne's character are, are given that ticket out and they're with their men and they can't bring their men the chief petty officer or whatever says well you know at this point i'm just going to call you guys by your first names Rusty. uh and that was like the one moment where somebody said you know what uh i'm not going to call you lieutenant right if now. you're not going to use my rank <laughs> i'm going to call you mick which is what john wayne does in that scene <laughs> right you big dumb mick <laughs> yeah it's that last little fraternal moment where it's like, well, if you're leaving us here to die, I think I'm going to like not salute you one last Interesting time. Interesting punctuations of like fraternal love shown between soldiers in this film. That's one of the scenes. Uh, the way everyone reacts to MacArthur is another one. Moments that I don't think you could do now without a, some snickering from well, the audience. There are a couple of there are a couple of really crazy uh, homoerotic moments. Yeah, the nuttiest one, I think Brickley says to the to the assembled enlisted men, like, "I'm going to need you older, you older crusty guys." And it takes a shot of the of Doc and the two other uh, enlisted guys who are 
uh, like 55 and look like pirates basically. Yeah, yeah. And then he says, I'm going to need you to take care of the younger guys. And then there's a close up shot of that little milk fed. He's about five feet tall. He's like 11. He's what is 11 he doing years there? old. His skin is just, even in black and white, you can see the pink porcelain beauty of him. And he looks over at the pirates with this big look. And it's such a daddy baby little moment like a, it basically it basically it has greek overtones of like will you take care of me and the right. the, the three pilots are like we'll take care of you yeah and it was i mean i had to turn the movie off and go take a walk <laughs> i had to put a cold compress on the back of my neck you got wet clothes on underneath that blanket no sir just scared <laughs> That, that's why you keep forcing glasses of milk onto me when I come over to record, right? <laughs> sure you don't want a tall glass of milk, Adam? Speaking of daddies, was the guy that they called dad supposed to be Brickley's actual father, or was no. he just a guy that they called dad? Oh, he was such a great character. He's just one of those one of those Americans that populated the kind of Philippine archipelago with little startups you know he had a little boat yard that he'd been working on since the guy that retires to mexico today like just the guy that moves overseas to to live out the rest of his days he seemed like a hollywood actor out of time and and i think he was a silent era actor that played cowboys yeah that that became like a grapes of wrath style actor later just a great bit part yeah the pride that a character like that has in being useful in a time of crisis is the best. Like this is uh, this is the Mexican guy in Terminator Two, right? Like you want to be the safe harbor in a conflict, and that's him. Like right. finally, like my 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 do- my marina is useful. Yeah, I get to be a productive <laughs> member of society. I thought I was here to drink and retire and die. He's also uh, a bit like the missionary couple in uh in 30 seconds over tokyo where he's he's definitely doomed and is sort of is sort of resigned to that in a way that doesn't bum you out right he does the harry truman on the slopes of of mount st helens thing that's a little bit of an obscure reference but but uh he's like i've lived here i've lived here my whole life and he's dante speaking yeah if the mountain goes i'm going with it (laughs) There's a lot of doomed people in this movie. Like, so many of the people in this movie are doomed. And and you don't see them die, right? Right. Like, sending half your squad to Bataan means they're dying they're gonna die right yeah or they're they're go- they're going on this forced march which everyone recognizes they're gonna have a bad time yeah it's like a <laughs> it's like one of the major atrocities that was recognized during the course of the war everybody in America knew what the Bataan death march was because it was a you know, it was a scandal. I mean, more than a scandal. <laughs> Does not seem to be condemning any of the choices that were made around that. Uh, on the American side? Yeah. I mean, I think I think we see so much frustration in everyone. We're getting our asses handed to us throughout this film. And the only, the only moments that we see any get back are the couple of times when they, when they torpedo a destroyer, which goes up where the torpedo ends up right in the magazine and the magazine happened to be filled with <laughs> jellied gasoline. Yeah. Uh, other than that, every other scene we're losing. We're getting, I mean, the Japanese are right over the horizon. We yeah. hear their guns. Every meeting after the first meeting is just made in a in a room full of rubble. Right. 
So, and the boats are breaking down constantly. Like, it's not a great PT boat commercial, if we're being honest. Like, yeah. the coral wrecked that one boat. We aren't really sure how. We don't get a straight story out of that guy. The, one of the coolest yeah. things is that they there are two different times when four boats go out and three boats come back yeah. and we don't see what happened. Yeah. It's like, whatever yeah. happened to the other boat? Oh, they were there in the middle of the night. I don't know where they ended up. I was really surprised as the, as the boat started to break down to see that they were made out of wood. I, I you know I've seen PT boats in a couple of movies now, and I imagined that their hulls were steel, but they're they appear to be like plywood in this movie. Yeah, they're wood, and um, and that was I think a key to their success. They were cheap to make, and they were uh, buoyant and relatively lightweight. I think they tried to make a PT boat out of steel, and it couldn't take the damage but they're hard mm. to maintain. Like the steel boat yeah. couldn't get the same sort of, I mean, they're incredibly fast. They're like going 50 knots. When you yeah. fire a torpedo out of a PT boat, you have to do it while turning, right? Because the tubes are wall-eyed. Isn't that part of the whole deal? Yeah, you have to turn and face the, like aim your tube. Yeah. The tube doesn't aim. No. The boat aims. <laughs> right. Yeah the, yeah, the boat is the turret. Yeah. And they talk about like when they've got one up in dry dock that they, to like get it back to service condition, they need to like soak the hull for 24 hours. Yeah, soak it on the way, that one guy says. Yeah, he's like, I like how that guy's thinking. <laughs> that's right. It'll, like, it'll There's soak. water all around us, guys. <laughs> <laughs> what, you want to you wanna soak it in Dad Nolan's whiskey? <laughs> Do you think that's his real name, or did he ask to be called Dad? I don't know. Can I ask to be called Dad? Every I, time I've I'm done it. I'm not going to call you Dad, no matter how many times you ask. Every time John. I've asked to be called Dad, I just get, like, eye rolls. Yeah. Is Donna Reed his daughter and John Wayne asked for her hand in marriage and he said, sure thing, kid, call me dad? Just like a uh, headcanon there, but <laughs> I'm just trying to come up with a reason to call that guy dad, okay? Mind you, mate, how about a little snort? Weird movie with what it doesn't show, right? All those boats lost, the, the death march unseen, the Megami class cruiser was brought up as a like you're never going to believe the size of this thing. I mean, we only see it in the dark. Well, here's one yeah. thing we never see: a single Japanese person. Right. Um, although there is a moment, I think, when the when we hear the declaration of war and they're in a Manila officers' club. There's one woman in that scene, and it's a crazy the way that scene is shot, where there's uh, there are conversations happening in the foreground. And our attention is directed to the middle ground or the background. Yeah. I mean, there are a yeah. couple of compositions that really struck me. Uh, but there was one woman whose reaction to the announcement made it seem like maybe she was Japanese. But other than that, every other, every Asian person we meet is Filipino. Was that the same woman who was on the dock when that PT boat was stocked with injured soldiers and about to leave? And she's like resting on the piling and 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 super bummed out. And then that guy on the boat tells her to get the fuck off the dock. No, so so I I, I don't think so. The, a big part of our military force in the Philippines was the Philippine Army mm -hmm. that was commanded by MacArthur and before the war trained by MacArthur. So there was a lot of, um, I think there was a lot of love for MacArthur within the Philippines because he'd been there since the 30s. 
Uh, and so I got the sense that, that that she was meant to be a kind of stand-in for all of uh, yeah. Philippine civilians that had sons that were part of the war effort. I mean, it, it felt just like a, a moment that we were meant to register the Philippine contribution to all these. We didn't see a, We didn't see a ton of soldiers. None of them had speaking parts, but you did see some filipino guys that seemed to be part of the of the crew yep so they were like semi-integrated which is interesting yeah but unfortunately like a lot of chefs and bartenders too you get that mix chefs and bartenders i was impressed at the degree to which you see uh anti-japanese sentiment from the Philippine people who are on the ground over there, like the guy who's forced to keep his bar open, who is freaking out He's about really freaking about out. quote the Japs yeah. coming. They're for coming. His bar. They're coming. They're coming. Yeah. And the the sailors are just like, yeah, we just buried two of our dudes, and all we want is a beer. So we're not really interested in your panic right now. Yeah. But I mean, I and, sympathize with that guy because he's like, my my daughters, my kids, like, let us out of here. That guy also knows that the presence of American troops is not going to keep him safe. That's right. What I didn't understand is, hey, all you're leaving behind here is a basket of beers. Like, you can still get out of here. Your bar's not going to make it. You know what I mean? Like, what about the lost tips? <laughs> yeah, you don't have to stand in the background polishing a glass. <laughs> yeah, right. Like, all this is burning to the ground, and you later on you're going to regret the 20 minutes you spent here I, for a dollar. I love, like, the, the, uh, the unit moves around several times. I think they move around three times, but everywhere they land, they always there's always a cantina. Yeah. Either, like, they build one or there's an officer's club that they make into a structure that's already there. There's always a place to relax. I had never heard or seen depicted this kind of situation where the Navy starts running out of boats, and so the sailors that are sort of standing around boatless... Yeah, Cons- you get to join the army. Yeah, get conscripted <laughs> into the army where it's like, all right, here's a gun. Like, you're not just, there's no boat for you. I, I know you didn't train for this. Yeah. Like, that. Like they make a point that, like, these guys wouldn't know anything about this kind of combat. Right. I'm supposed to, like, put one foot in front of, in front of the other? Yeah. I mean, the, all those marching scenes where it's like, left yeah. face, and yeah. the sailors are all like, all right. <laughs> but, yeah, other uh, if they can't swim to yeah. the next locale, like... Get a gun and defend the, defend your hole. Brutal, and you really register the disappointment on their faces. There, like, there's the there's the double hit of you've lost your boat, and also you're doing you're doing a job you're untrained for, and you're conscripted into being in a part of the military that, if it were your choice, you would be there. Right. It wasn't your first choice. I think it's hard, or not hard, but like for us now. You can be in combat in Afghanistan and 15 hours later be in uh, Frankfurt in a military hospital eating Mm -hmm. macaroni and cheese, right? Like there is no place on the globe right now that you can't be, if you're an American soldier, that you can't be rescued from and be back in the States uh, within, you know, a, a single cycle. Right. And the idea in this movie that not only is there no rescue, but uh, you got no chance. There are not enough planes right. to we evacuate. Can, we can't even airdrop you some macaroni and cheese. Yeah. You're basically, you're eating cockroaches until until you're buried in a hole. 
and everybody takes it. Everybody takes it with the kind of like cheerful resignation because it's part of just the expectation, part of military discipline, but also part of the time. In 1940... They don't have anything to compare this to. Right. Most people, even back in Iowa, are like, I'm one... I'm one finger infection away from dying of sepsis at any moment. If one plane comes, we can take 30. If two planes come, we can take 60. But if one plane comes, that's fucking amazing. (laughs) Right. I mean, can you imagine if two planes come and then the one comes and it's like, yeah, there's not going to be another. There's not even any hope. Nobody's sitting there like, well, I'll just stick around the airport because maybe that second plane. Right check my Delta app and see if I can switch onto a different flight tomorrow. Soup, biscuits, jam. Tonally, like, wouldn't a loss of hope be welcome in a story like this? I think it's interesting when we scrutinize the lack of insubordination early on in the film, when there's probably cause for a little bit of that, that when things are at their most bleak, like, the major... The major stressor for the troops is they're wanting to fight and not being able to. And when shit is at its worst, when people are being taken off of a plane that they thought they could be evacuated on, there's no complaining about that. There's no crestfallen moment there. Well, think about uh, think about the tank crew in Lebanon, where from the very beginning of that movie, we see rank insubordination and the feeling we had living in the world of Lebanon for the length of that movie where you never felt comfortable or good for a single second. And a big part of that was that the crew had no unity, no sense of purpose. No one had any morale of any kind. No tanks had bathrooms. They didn't seem to believe in the cause or even know what the cause was. Right. Or know where they were. Yeah. And then you, 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 you you compare it to this the attitude of kind of selflessness, but also when John Wayne is kind of giving a homily to those two dead soldiers, the two dead sailors rather. And he says, they, you know, they were just a couple of blue jackets doing their job and they did it well. Yeah. And he's presiding over these two dead bodies and saying a thing that we in our era of, of total individuation kind of, it registers almost as an insult like there's nothing special about these two guys. They're just two random blue jackets that did their job. But in the context of the time, it was meant as if not a compliment, then certainly it wasn't a diss. And I think it's because this was an era where, where people didn't have that sense of like, I'm special. It's like, Nope, you got to be this old and then you died. Yeah. That's, that's weird. Like that relationship between grief and individuality and, and your permission to feel that like these, these soldiers are stripped of everything throughout this film until finally they're stripped of their boats even. Right. I mean, you're, you only matter to your friends Yeah. and there's never a suggestion that you matter to anyone else except the U S Navy who thinks of you as a body. Right. I mean, somebody, somebody's going to take your boots basically. Yeah, there's a scene where uh, John Wayne wears a uh, pair of boots around his neck and he's wearing boots on his feet. He's a rich man. He was trying to keep his boots dry and maybe what he had on his feet were some kind of... They had treads on him. Did they? Yeah. He's got two pairs of boots, water boots and land boots? Guess so. I mean, boots, obviously a commodity. Now watch out for the coral. I wanted to talk a little bit about when this movie was released because it came out kind of right at the end of... 1945 
and I guess didn't do very well at the box office because the war was over and people were kind of exhausted by war stories. I wonder what it would have meant to an audience being released during a, a war that was ongoing and, and really dragging at that point, like a movie with this many kind of sustained defeats. Like in some ways it's kind of aspirational about how everybody deals with defeat being a routine part uh, of being at war. Like they have little victories too, but like they're, they are quite able to just, you know, continue the project without losing, losing hope or losing gumption. And I guess that's, uh, that's an interesting kind of story for a filmmaker to set out to tell during a war. And that, and I think that they thought that the war would still be on when the movie came out. Yeah, do you feel sad that the war is over if you're in production on this thing? What a weird <laughs> confluence of feelings. Yeah. There's a weird revisionism that has happened in very recent years um, in World War II scholarship to think that the outcome of the war was inevitable before it even started. The Germans could never have won and the Japanese could never have won because of supply, because of availability of gasoline and manufacturing base that would enable them to keep pace with the United States and our, you know, impossible engine of manufacturing. And so there's a kind of um, erasure of the consequences or the, the threat of losing the war that I think during the war, people felt acutely from the beginning and it's what made winning the war seem like such a massive impossible victory and these scenes you know halfway through where you know, mid the battle of midway being a great example of like we pulled this off and it was the thing that turned the tide and what modern historians are trying to do is say ah even if we'd lost midway even if we'd lost every battle we would have just worn them down because they just couldn't keep making aircraft carriers like we could. It's weird that this film doesn't have a turning point. It's turning point as a quote Yeah, at the end of the film. It's turning point is two years in the future, Yeah, right? Or, I mean, <laughs> Midway has happened by, the, by this point, but it still isn't clear. If you think about night, or the, the winter of 42, the Japanese army and Navy were invincible pretty much you know they were they had captured the entire south pacific an in, impossible amount of area and people yeah it didn't and they had you know they had access to china which had plenty of natural resources so i think in the context of this movie the idea that it was foreordained that america would win was still not at all how people thought of it i mean i didn't I, I still thought of World War II as an incredible American success story until I was in my 20s and started to realize that the Russians had lost 15 million people in, in prosecuting the war compared to our couple hundred thousand. Yeah. That's the core of what our show is about, like how these films reflect a, a country's idea of itself and how that it comes into conflict with what we learned in school 
and how that comes in conflict with the actual reality. But a lot of the war movies of, of the late 40s and early 50s, they don't pull punches, right? They're not just patriotism movies. But you're right, Ben. Maybe this was like, I don't know, too much of a downer. There's not enough dancing. The resolve that the characters have in in the face of a string of defeats is the thing that this film is trying to get across is like, you know, you just keep working at it. And in a we nuked Japan and the war is over world, you don't like people didn't need that message. Maybe. Well, and, and what the movie doesn't show is that Bulkley or Brickley ends up winning the Medal of Honor. Yeah. Uh, for his actions throughout the theater. Everybody, we do How see that. How many Medal of Honor winners have we seen in, in movies that they didn't actually make a big deal out of that? Right. They never even show him. They, they never even imply that he won it. There's no title yeah. card at the end. But he became one of the most <laughs> decorated men in the Navy. Everybody on the boat, and we see that great scene where the ensign walks around and is like, we all won the Silver Star, and nobody gives a shit because we're, yeah. way, we're way past the point of caring about our yeah, Navy the, careers the at that point. The film and everyone in it is totally disinterested in the idea of reward. Yeah, just like, oh, yeah, Silver Star, huh? Yeah. I mean, basically, like, where's our macaroni and cheese? Uh. But Bulkley won the Navy Cross. He won, I mean, he he's, like, routinely cited as one of the... Navy's most decorated officers and we don't see that we don't see that in this movie at all he he remains a uh, a pretty humble and and knowable character and he flies back to Washington we don't we we hope that he succeeds in his mission but you know he played a significant role in getting John F Kennedy his PT109 uh, billet. Interesting. So huh. he went back to the States like Joe Kennedy, uh, uh, JFK's father had been pulling strings right and left because, because Kennedy was four F right. He, he had too many medical problems to, to enlist, but he really wanted to. And so his father got, he was effing stateside after that. Yeah. Well, <laughs> His, his, uh, like Joe Kennedy found some Boston doctor, basically like Trump's doctor to write a thing that was like, he's the greatest man ever strong as bull and enlisted in the Navy. And then Bulkley met, he may seem inbred, but he is not (laughs) Bulkley met Kennedy on this tour that he went, um, Joe Kennedy at some fundraiser after he went back on this 30 person plane and Kennedy came to him and said, like, put my put my son, John, on one of these T- PT boats. So it was all like it. He old boyed Kennedy into his into his. Uh, wow. PT 109 boat. Yeah. Major part of his legend. But none of that. I guess I guess that probably wasn't in evidence. It, it wasn't evident in 1945. PT 109 hadn't become a thing, I guess. Uh, that right. all happened later as part of his. Kennedy's like legend producing autobiography. You know, John Wayne is clearly conscious of his appearance as a leading man, potential leading man. And it's, you see him in, uh, in all of the shots kind of his shirts always tucked in. He looks pretty handsome. Montgomery isn't above making himself look a little shabby. He kind of, you know, he has a little paunch. 
He pulls his pants up too high. Great leather jacket when he's driving that boat. Oh, and that first scene where he's got the he's got the Ray Bans on and that <laughs> fighter pilot jacket. The best. You're like, come on, I'll follow this guy anywhere. I mean, I came into this film thinking like it was going to be a co-equal partnership between Montgomery and John Wayne to run the movie. And they sidelined John Wayne so early with his injury. It really it really trains your attention onto Montgomery in a way that it should be. That's great. But then John Wayne gets all that romantic side plot yeah. with Donna Reed. But that's not hero stuff. And I think that's crucial, right? It, it's not. The hero but, of the film is someone else. But we spend 45 what seemed to me to be really dragging minutes yeah. of a two and a half hour film with, you know, with John Wayne and Donna Reed in half light, not kissing. Yeah. And it's just like, why are we, I mean, why does John Wayne get this sort of Frank Sinatra, uh, <laughs> like third of this movie, uh, when I want to be back with Robert Montgomery with him making hard choices about which boat he's going to sink next. Yeah. Uh, K significa the black baseball hat that John Wayne is wearing for kind of the last third of the film. I think that the, there were so many cool uniforms in World War II. My God. There's a whole, <laughs> there is a whole subset of World War II fan that is just about uniforms, cataloging the uniforms. When all those officers walk by in their dress whites and you realize yeah. that any dress white after Vietnam is made either entirely out of polyester or some kind of 70-30 polyester blend, but those dress whites were made out of pressed cotton. They're gonna play better. Cotton with a little starch in it. And I looked at those uniforms, and I was like, oh, if I could just dress like that every day. Just to, <laughs> I mean, dress like that and not look like I was a chef. Was the guy who wore the ball cap with the brim pointing straight up, was that guy ever cool, or was that yeah. just the signifier of the dope? No, 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 the, the, the brim straight up was like, if you're an aircraft mechanic or a bombardier or a torpedo man oh if you had your head down in something you'd you'd want the brim up yeah brim up brim up if you're like if you're doing something i think that that was a pretty cool look and the black baseball hat it just said something about like this is you know i'm navy and this is my casual uh exec hat i guess i mean all the hats were cool macarthur's hat what i've never understood i know this is a sidebar but why hasn't Ralph Lauren popularized the World War II pilot hat where they took the they took the brim stiffener out so they could put their headphones over it? Like that flop down hat. That flop down hat with the with the like the front, I mean it's such a great hat and no American fashion icon. I mean Robert uh, uh Ralph Lauren has taken almost every other element of uniform culture and repurposed it as some sort of the epaulet jacket, the cotton yeah. tunic, the whole, all that military stuff. Well, I mean, that's like a huge tradition in menswear is that it all kind of trickles out of militaria. Right, right. We see it everywhere. But that hat, the potentially the greatest of all like modified uniforms... You know, if you got like the embroidered polo bear on the on the crest of your hat, yeah, or like the <laughs> RL emblem, or I mean, I think I would probably have some kind of what lightning bolt, like yeah. a, a raccoon throwing lightning bolts from on top of a phone pole. 
something that you know like a crow a crow riding a raccoon that's a that's your production company uh pre-roll thing that happens before your movie john raccoon climbs up a phone pole and starts yeah. throwing lightning bolts down yeah oh somebody please make that it only has to be 30 seconds john long. roderick productions <laughs> trapped like rats but dying like men well, uh, the death march of every episode of Friendly Fire is review time. <laughs> <laughs> I've always said. And uh, for John Ford's They Were Expendable, uh, it is time to design the rating system. This system always comes from something that catches my eye in the film. And in the film, there are a number of objects that could have been this scale i thought for a long time i'd make it sandy's pearl necklace but mm. then but then we talked about how that was my thing and i don't want to make my thing my sexual thing don't make your thing the thing i don't want that to be the thing no. so that's not going to be it <laughs> and then i came very close to making it the harmonica that uh that snake plays uh at squarehead and slug's funeral i thought that said a lot about the sort of creature comforts that you're permitted uh, in a time of war and like how everyone has a job and in, he asked permission he asked permission before he played taps most harmonica guys or guys with a fucking guitar at a campfire don't even ask to play they just pull it out and play champagne supernova that's right and it's not fun or good no <laughs> instead uh this is an object that came to me uh during our discussion and I think it was something that Ben said that really inspired this, which was this film, as much if not more than most others, was about the idea of being together in a time of war. I can't remember a single scene in the film where anyone was by themselves. They're always working a problem or arguing a problem or wanting to go to war and being stopped or repairing a boat that they need to go do something. And maybe the thing in the film that most... Uh, embodies this idea is like the cantina. The cantina is in every place where they set up shop. It's the place where they conspire about what they're talking about in the officer's quarters. It's vital to, I think, their happiness. And I think it's a reason why we never see, see anyone complain about their circumstances in the film. They always have a place to be together. So from a scale of one to five cantinas, we will review They Were Expendable. I think this film, just starting off, it has got the best in breed practical war scenes uh, that involve both the sea and the air. Like, I just can't think of another film that does it as great. And you can see other films biting these rhymes. Like, we've seen yeah. films that, that try to do what this does and not as good. And it's sort of a miracle that a film made in this time period with this budget can pull it off. And I think there's there's just that John Ford magic. Like, he is a super confident film director, like a, a big-time swinging dick Hollywood guy. And he does the thing. He does the thing throughout. And I think that's also what cuts against what could be a great film. Is I, think, I don't think anyone's going to say no to John Ford. And I think that's why there are parts in this film that drag. Uh, Ford is a notorious asshole and he is hard on his actors. And I don't think he is working with a lot of people to tell him no. And I think that's why you get a lot of scenes that just sort of creep along 
that you're waiting to end before you get to another thing. And then you'll, you'll get to a character cul-de-sac, like the one that happens between Donna Reed and John Wayne. Like, what is that? It's not really realized as a thing. I think we're head casing its goodness. We're, we're making the case that this is a good decision where it probably isn't during production. Like we're making it darker than I think it's truly trying to be by not tying that up into a bow. So there are problems that make it not a five cantina film, but there's so much that's good about it. I think you got to start with those those two performances. I think John Wayne and, and Montgomery are are awesome. I want to see more Montgomery films, personally. It's hard. It's hard. I mean, I know it's not great, and I think it's a little bit better than good. I think it's I think it's 3.75 cantinas. I think that's where I'm at with it. I don't need to see it again. And that's usually like, if I really like a film and it's a four thing film, I want to, I want to see it again for sure. And I don't think I need to see this film again. I think I got what I needed to get out of it. I got, I think I got all that it was trying to say. Going off uh, something John said, the, uh, the the second the combat starts, just like jumping up on the edge of, of the couch and, uh, and just being blown away at like how, great that stuff was is definitely something I experienced um, and feeling like I don't need to see this again is also something I experienced I um, think that this movie was meant to be entertaining and I did not find it to be I found it I was pausing and you know going to the look in the fridge and you know dicking around on my phone a lot uh, when I was supposed to be watching it uh, it just it just doesn't hold together as a movie. Like there are so many great things in it. There's so so many things to recommend it. Uh, so many uh, scenes, performances, little details that are are terrific. But there are also just things like there's a scene where Donna Reed comes over to to have dinner with four of the four of the boatsmen, and they've set up most of the rest of their crew under the hut that they're in to sing a song. And the song is like super dissonant and like hard to catch the melody of and badly sung. And they keep cutting back to like a, like a, you know, gauzy close-up of Donna Reed while this is happening. Like it's supposed to be super meaningful to her. And it just like such a miss, such a profound miss as a scene. Like it just doesn't, it doesn't make a lick of sense. They don't even give the, those guys any of the biscuits either. Right. Like, I can't imagine what uh, what would motivate them to go down there under that hut and sing if, if, if there's no upside in it for them. It was just, like, one of a million bad scenes. Also, it's worth noting a lot of period-appropriate uh, misogyny and homophobia in the film that were a little... A little uh, distasteful uh in the viewing obviously like not going to get away from that in a a film from this era but you're not going to find the woke john wayne film from 1945 but is that one of the times or did did you always look at your phone at that point did you did you look at the uh, you made another contribution to the aclu every time did you go to the american Uh socialist party website and and re-up i don't participate in that crap oh right of course not but yeah i uh a lot of good stuff also and some amazing moments. I'll give it three El Toro Cantinas. I haven't quite figured out, but I think we've talked about it 
the like unnecessary romance in the heart of World War II movies from this era. Uh, Crash Dive also had a kind of, you know, romance in it that was, it was made interesting by the, by the presence of a love triangle uh, that, you know, that pitted the two officers against one another, except that when the chips were down, they, they worked as a team. In this movie, there's no reason for it. It doesn't deepen our appreciation of John Wayne's character. It's trying to also give some credit to, you know, the many sort of medical personnel and other people. I mean, the whole point of it, I think, is to give us that that moment at the very end of the film where John Wayne says to the to the uh, the blonde army officer, like, have you heard anything about where Donna Reed might be? And he's like, nah, she's probably, uh, you know, she's probably been turned into a comfort woman somewhere and won't survive the war. But we spend 45 minutes just super boring domestic, not domestic. It's not even drama. There's just no stakes except like, I can't get her on the phone. And I've suggested before that that stuff is in these movies because movie makers are trying to appeal to a broad audience and they want women in the theaters and they think this is how to do it. I think it mars the film. But in terms of the war movie part of this war movie, I feel like I either learned a lot or was directed to do some some further study to make sense of what I was seeing that maybe a a contemporary audience would have gotten without needing it. But I don't think that mars it because it feels like watching a World War II movie, there are an awful lot of theaters. And for us in 2019, it's pretty hard to remember them all. But I feel like the war movie scenes, the sort of explication of that period and a lot of the, a lot of the Marine Corps, you know, island hopping that we did was late in the war. And this is early, early days where we watched the, the war start. So I feel like it's four cantinas, a solid four cantinas for me. It's not, I would watch it again because there's a lot to take in and there's a lot of scenes like that scene of the dudes underneath the, the cantina singing their song. I found that performance very affecting the fact that the enlisted men would never be invited into the dining hall, but had all congregated underneath in order just to hear her voice. They're not even getting biscuits. As Adam says, I just, I, I sensed that there was stuff in that, that I, that I could never understand, Hmm. but I loved the, I loved their, their harmony and they've got this crazy song about love to sing anyway four four cantinas all right for robert montgomery uh, uh, as much as anything at the end of the movie there there's a, a wide shot down the fuselage of the plane that they're getting in and there's a woman lying on a on like a hospital cot in the foreground and you can't really see her face because you know she's like lying down and it's just not a good angle on it did it, did you guys think that that was going to be Donna Reed? Yeah, I felt that way. But it weren't. Could have been. She was on the plane the whole time. <laughs> <laughs> I should say that that plane, the C-47 that rescued them, was my dad's 
job in the war. He wasn't in in any of these actions because he didn't join the Navy uh, until 1943. But that's exactly the the job that he did. He he came in. Sometimes people were expecting two planes and there were only one. And my dad was the the pilot of those C-47s that came, landed on some dirt strip, threw the supplies out the back and then took the wounded or whatever officers were escaping the war. One of the great planes of all time. If this was a modern movie, we would have had the pilot say like one like super wry thing, like yell back at them one thing and then take off. Right. Kind of missed that. Yeah, missed. We never saw the pilots either, just like we never saw the Japanese. Yeah, we yep. needed a pilot saying, hold on to your butts. Right. <laughs> Didn't get that guy. Did you have a guy? Yeah, that guy would be my guy, but he's not in this movie, <laughs> unfortunately. I think my guy is Sandy. And I think the reason is she feels the pain. She sees how terrible the war is going to be as it spools up. Like, she's elbow deep in guts she knows personally what it's going to mean for her professionally but she puts a personal spin on it you know the more of these guys that she meets the more potential suitors she has dinner with the more she realizes she's surrounded by ghosts and it haunts her i miss her when she's gone like her scenes like if we're talking about like the the a and the b and maybe the c story like she's a her story doesn't go anywhere In a film where the soldiers themselves even aren't permitted to feel that kind of grief or pain. Like, like what do we get when when the people die? We cut to a couple of graves with palm fronds on them. We don't even see really... Like, we get John Wayne's eulogy, and he has a hard time with that. But, like, I I think war films are an opportunity to express, like, a kind of pain, a sort of deep pain about death and loss that this film isn't capable of except through someone like Donna Reed's character. So I think she's going to be my guy for this one. Who's your guy, Ben? My guy is uh, Mulcahy. They call him Irish and (laughs) make a lot of jokes about his ethnic background toward the end. But uh, the scene that made him my guy is when uh, MacArthur gets on the boat and one of the young guys asks for uh, the general's autograph on his hat and it just cuts back to boats going, like, like hands to the sky, like, Oi, with these kids! <laughs> that was a fun moment. Yeah. That exasperation was so great. <laughs> That's like the universal sign of exasperation. Yeah. John, did you have a guy? Yeah, my guy, I I uh, I couldn't really find him credited, uh, but he was the he was the non commissioned officer with the with the dark beard, who uh, was the most piratical of the three, who was kind of taking the center of the song sung under the cantina, and yeah. uh, and just looked at, in every scene, kind of. Um, you know, he had boats on one side and he had dock on the other. But to me, he was the one, you know, he was the black beard at the center of that little troika of of dudes. Yeah. But that guy, and in particular, the moment that Brickley throws him that young sailor and says, look after the kids. It's him that gives the most lascivious look. 
And I mm. always imagine that that young sailor is looking him directly in the eye like, take care of me, dad, E, daddy. God. <laughs> so he's, he's my guy. And I hope that one day somebody throws me a young sailor. Good Lord. <laughs> wow. Uh, we have got to wrap up the show so I can leave. <laughs> ben, <laughs> I need to leave this studio. <laughs> I, I, your skin is like sandpaper. Let's uh, let's find out what film we're watching next. And, All right. And what sexual overtones will be in it. Here we go. We got the 120-sided die. My little girl is here with me, and I'm going to let her... Roll the dice. Oh, a guest roll. Right in here, right in this area. One hundred and eight. One hundred and eight is a another World War II movie set in Japan from two thousand five, directed by Alexander Sugarov. Hmm. It's called The Sun. The Sun. S-O-N or S-U-N? S-U-N. The Sun. Focuses on Emperor Hirohito and Japan's defeat when he's finally confronted by General Douglas MacArthur, who offers him to accept a diplomatic defeat for survival. Oh, this will be an interesting movie to watch. Another ladder movie, huh? Yeah. Wow, very interesting. Well, that will be next week on Friendly Fire. Really looking forward to it. And uh, I guess we'll let Rob's take it from here. So... For John Roderick and Adam Pranica, I've been Ben Harrison. To the victor, go the spoiler alerts. Friendly Fire is a Maximum Fun podcast, hosted by Benjamin Harrison, Adam Pranica, and John Roderick. It's produced by me, Rob Schulte. Our theme music is War by Edwin Starr, courtesy of Stone Agate Music. And our logo art is by Nick Dittmore. Friendly Fire is made possible by the support of our listeners, like you. And you can make sure that the show continues by going to MaximumFun.org slash donate. As an added bonus, you'll receive our monthly Pork Chop episode, as well as all the fantastic bonus content for Maximum Fun. If you'd like to discuss the show online, please use the hashtag FriendlyFire. You can find Ben on Twitter at BenjaminAHR, Adam is at CutForTime, John is at John Roderick. And I'm at Rob K. Schulte. Thanks. We'll see you next week. Maximumfun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Audience supported.